All right, good morning. I heard whining and crying and knew that was about Alex. <clears throat> so Revelation 19 is where we are. We are going to wrap this book up soon. So if you would turn there, if you, if you need a Bible, there's one on the chair in front of you. I can even help you. It's on page... Yay. It was on page 1040. Uh, you're welcome. It's like the third page from the end, is what I could say. Uh, there are, we're going to cover the second half of 19 and all of 20 today. 20 is short. <clears throat> and there are, historically, since the first century of the church, there have been two common views of how to take this chapter, mostly chapter 20. And is it future, is it a separate time period, or is it the time period we're in? And, and some would future it, and they would put 19 and 20 back to back. Some would put it as the same time period. We're going to do the second. We're going to put it as the same time period. And so uh, I'll give you some reasons we get into chapter 20 that point to that. But again, ultimately, it doesn't change the outcome of the message either. Just as we've said all the way through the book of Revelation, that an apocalyptic genre, a book filled with imagery, that has already given us the how you interpret it part in the beginning, in the opening verses that say you need to understand the imagery of the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus, and the visions. You put those three things together according to John, and you can understand the book a lot easier. That's probably why a lot of Western American Christians have a hard time with Revelation because it is rooted deeply in the imagery of the Old Testament. Without a good, strong understanding of that, uh, we really don't understand it. And so um, one thing I was going to do was take 19 and 20 because they have a lot of imagery from Isaiah. But when I decided to sandwich them together and do them in one message, we're going to do something a little different. But if you'd like to see Isaiah, especially, I mean, uh, Revelation 19, especially through the lens of, of Isaiah the prophet, let me know and I can send you some things that I found were really interesting. You just can't cover everything in one day, right? So last week we left off a few verses into Revelation 19 as 18 closed, the judgment of the earth, the end of the world had come again. And I say again, if you're joining us, Revelation is written in cycles. It's written in what's called discursive teaching. It's, it'll tell you the story and then it'll tell you the same story from a different vantage point. It'll then tell you that same kind of same scene set from a different perspective. And a lot of times what happens is we're switching from the upper story or the lower story, the lower story being kind of the human view of things, to the view from heaven, if you will. So kind of an upper story, lower story, and today combines a bit of both of those. So last week we finished off with the famous, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so it is Jesus in this large marriage feast to the church. And we see this kind of culmination of the judgment of the wickedness on earth and the end of things that are currently, and we see the, the kind of eternity ushered in with the image of a wedding feast between us and our Savior Jesus. And so that wraps up. Now we go back in time again. We go at this same idea from a different direction. And so before we get there, let me give you kind of a main idea for today. The triumph of God in Christ. Revelation 19 and 20 show the victory that Jesus has over Satan, sin, and death. The gospel frees the church to eternal life and condemns all of evil to eternal death. 
that's what we said last week too. Like we saw judgment pour out and we've seen that a couple different times. And so we see that, that the church, the gospel brings the church to eternal life. And we also see that ultimately the gospel plays out in that those who are not in Christ and maybe even more importantly, Satan and we've talked about like the first and uh, second beast or the first beast and the false prophet, they're also sentenced to hell as well. And so we're going to see that same thing again today. And again, reminding us that Revelation is written in cycles. The, the visions show us often the same thing from a different perspective. So Revelation 19, we're going to pick up in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, if you remember all the way back to Revelation chapter 6, as we saw the seals, the seven seals, those seals that kind of pointed to the plan of redemption playing out over time, that first seal, in fact, the first four, the four horsemen that you often hear about, and the first seal, the first horse is the, the rider on a white horse who is going to conquer or conquering and to conquer. And we talked about this representing Jesus and the gospel going forward in or on earth to creation, to humanity. In, verse, uh, in Revelation 6, 2, it says, A white horse, a rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And we talked about how Jesus, actually the gospel, the, the accomplishment of the work of Christ, actually brings war to the world. Now, we don't mean armies and kings and, and wars like human wars, although that's also true. That comes in a later horse. When we talk about the gospel bringing war, I think of things like Ephesians that tells us that we are not in a battle of flesh and blood, but one of the spirit, right? That, that Christianity exists in a spiritual battle, right? That, that we have an enemy that is unseen. We often see things and think, okay, well, that opposes us. Maybe it's a political agenda. Maybe it is a cultural kind of agenda. Maybe it's something like that, and we see that as opposing the truth of God. And that may be true, but the force behind that is spiritual evil. The force behind that is Satan, the, that enemy of God. And so we saw that all the way back in the Garden of Eden as Satan tempts humanity to mislead them. We see that story retold in, I think it's Revelation 12, the woman and the dragon, right? And, and we see the dragon now a new kind of reference to that serpent, even defines it for us. In the next chapter, we see the first beast rising out of the sea, which is Rome to the first century church, or authoritarian or totalitarian force or government on earth to the modern day reader. We see the second beast, and we, the false prophet, the false religions or false teachings. And we see those two things, and it says that the dragon or Satan gives them power. And we talk about how the church is oppressed in one of two ways, or attempts to be oppressed. The world, or Satan, tries to oppress the church either through force or through deception. Right? We saw that play out in Daniel, as he and his friends were tried to be forced to worship Nebuchadnezzar, or tried to be forced to not pray. And so we see this force versus deception kind of thing. And so now we fast forward, and we're getting another view Another time we're told how the gospel causes war. So now we see again Jesus, the rider on the white horse. 
one who has come to wage war. Now, this vision or this view of Jesus is a little more explicit. So, verse 12. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So we see crowns, a robe dipped in blood from war. We see that Jesus has authority and power, and that he has come to wage war. Now, Jesus, again, wages war not with soldiers, not with bullets, not with bombs or planes or tanks, but that Jesus comes with the word of God. See, his battle is for you and I. His battle is for the lost. His, his battle is for those who are his own. Whether that, rep- that is, whether that represents us as those who have been found in Christ or those who will come to Christ eventually or soon, we hope, whether it's it, just that collective group of all who are Christ, but, but Christ wages war through the gospel. It is his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection that gives victory and wages war. And so we see the war take place, and we see this represented in Jesus as he comes forward to wage war with a robe drenched in blood or dripped in blood. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. We've seen that phrase now repeated a few times, that he will tread the winepress of the, or tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Earlier in Revelation, it said that Satan will have to drain the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. That is the most frightening sentence I think we could put together. That we would need to endure, not we, that someone or anyone would need to endure the wrath or the fury of the wrath of God. And so Jesus has come to bring that. And notice again that it talks about that he comes with a sharp sword from his mouth. Again, the gospel goes forward. The message of Jesus goes forward. Verbally, audibly, yes, it's spiritual, but we see the gospel is this spoken message. You see, the, the simplest form of this message, that there's a God who created you and loves you. He designed you. He made you. And because he made you, he has a design and an understanding of how you best live. And that's, we summarize that just by saying you were created to worship God. That you were made to not just sing songs. We, we sing songs in worship as well, but that your life is designed to give glory to God, to ascribe worth to God. That all that we do should point forward to the glory of God. And we know that that doesn't happen, and that's the result of sin, that sin enters into human history, and, and ultimately sin is, is simply choosing not to live the way God created us to live and choosing to live another way. And so that, that happens, and in, in that happened so many, so many years ago, so many generations of people ago that it entered into human history in the first human family. And then it gets passed on almost like genetically to us that we are born in sin, that we're born under the curse of sin and under the wrath of God, and, and that we are not able to, we're not capable of 
restoring that relationship. We, we can't reach back out to God. We're not capable. We can't earn our way back to God. We're, we're not good enough. We're not smart enough or strong enough or good enough or anything that we are, that we are born destitute. See, the gospel is called good news, right? The good news is that even though that we were completely incapable Even though there's nothing we could contribute to our own salvation, God comes to us. He comes to us in the form, in Jesus. He comes in flesh. That God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the very Word of God becomes flesh. You see, it's this same author, John, who writes in his gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And that the whole world was created through him. There's nothing that was created that was not created through Christ, and we know it's him because we get down to verse 14 and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the only son of the living God. So we know that the eternal creator, Jesus, is the gospel. He becomes flesh. So the the God who is everywhere and everything and all-powerful and all-knowing condescends himself to humanity in the form of a child, that he lays down everything for us in love, that he might come to us. And that he lives the life that you and I cannot live and do not live and choose not to live. And he does so victoriously, overcoming sin. And then he dies a death to cover the penalty for our sin, a death he did not deserve, but a death that we deserve, that death on the cross, that he pays our penalty. And then he is laid in a grave. And there's got to be this moment, these hours, this day, two days, almost three, right? That where in the moment, Satan's got to think, I think I won here. And then Jesus resurrects from the grave on the third day. Having victory not only over sin, but over Satan and over death. And so we see the gospel news is, is a news of victory, right? It's a news of promise, Right? And Jesus ascends back to heaven where we get to read about what Jesus is doing and will do, where he is reigning as king, where he is coming as conqueror, and we know that he pours out his spirit on us, those of us who have given our lives to following him, who have been baptized into his church. That's one of the promises that he will empower us by his spirit. If you're hearing this gospel message, that's not something you've responded to in the past I'll go back almost 2,000 years to the first preached gospel by Peter to the crowd in Jerusalem. And the crowd says, well, what must we do to be saved? How do we get saved from our sin and the wrath of God and the, the fury of the wrath of God? And he says, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Spirit of God. That you can live different." That you can be different. See, and all of this reminds us. Now, we're, we're on like second to last page of the Bible here. On like page two, you don't have to turn there. But on like page two or three, we're given this promise. And it's in Genesis 3, it says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, this is God, by the way, speaking to Satan. After sin enters into human history. I will put enmity or war between you and the woman, between your offspring, meaning evil and demons, and her offspring, meaning humanity. Now he pivots. He says, he, 
He is Jesus. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That promise thousands of years ago, made by God, cursing Satan, is this. Jesus will come, and though you think you get a win, you bruise his heel, he ultimately crushes your head. That the victory of Jesus is the gospel. Then we lean back and we're okay, that means victory over who I was. I don't have to be defined by my worst decisions, that I can be defined by Christ's greatest victories. Right? That means I don't have to be defined the same way, but that's victory over the trajectory of my life. God changes that, redeems that, uses that. Those of you that know my story, I'm the least likely person to be standing on this stage, right? I don't know if I like that you didn't agree or not. I'm not sure. Anyhow. But that God redeems and restores, right? And that, that God gives life. That's victory over this world, the world we live in, the world that is broken, the world that is sinful and flawed and corrupted. It's, it's victory over that. It's victory over Satan's sin and death, too. That the gospel overcomes that. So back in Revelation 19, verse 16 is one of my favorite verses. You'll see why in a minute. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is tattooed, but I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll let you wrestle with that one. <laughs> the tat people, tattoo people are like, see? Now, anyhow, <laughs> on his robe and on his thigh is the words, the titles, the names. King of kings. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all authority. Right, that Jesus is written as he comes to conquer, as King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who he is. And so here's a note for you on the screen. Christ gives spiritual life to the church through the power of the gospel. Satan cannot overcome the church because Jesus had victory over him when he rose from the grave. Right, that's that promise in Genesis 3.15. Yeah, you bruise his heel, that'll fix. He crushed your head. That's permanent. Right? That Jesus gives. Now, I want you to hear this spiritual life. If you're in Christ today, you have been given spiritual life. You were once spiritually dead. And I'll, I'm a little ahead of myself. I'll cover that in a minute. But you were once spiritually dead. And now, in Christ, you are made spiritually alive. We'll get to that. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. And he called all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, Gather for the great supper of God. Now remember the beginning of this chapter. If you were here last week, or if you've ever heard these words, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. This we began, kind of recap that. That heaven or eternity or the kingdom is defined or, or, or given us an image of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Meaning Jesus, right? That Jesus takes his bride, the church, and it's this gigantic feast. Right? Many of you are married, have been married, and have been to a wedding or, or whatever it's been, and you, you know that celebration that finally the time has come and we're, we're here now. We've, we've longed for this day, and now it's here, and we're with our family and friends, and we celebrate that. That's the wedding feast of the Lamb. But now we're going to get a different view. So we go from that kind of upper story view in heaven of this feast of Christ and his bride and now we're going to see a different image of that. 
right? Come gather for the great supper of God. Verse 17, when I saw an angel standing in the sun, I'm just going to read that again. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather, he's telling the birds, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So he hears this voice, this angel proclaim, come to the birds, come gather for this feast that you're going to feast on human flesh. As John's vision moves us from this upper story wedding banquet, where Christ is with his church, we move down to the lower story where the destruction of sinful humanity and the earth is taking place and the birds metaphorically are going to feast on, like a vulture, feast on the flesh on earth. You with me? You see how that's the same meal from a very different perspective. One incredibly joyful and celebratory and one is grief and mourning and pain. Same story, different view. Verse 19, it says, and I saw the beast. That's the first beast. When I said the beast, it means the first beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in the presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two, the first beast and the second beast, the first beast of the false prophet, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword and came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So we see this feast kind of repeated. But there's this Christian view, this divine view, this upper story understanding of Christ and his church. And then there's this judgment on earth that ultimately lands in hell, the eternal lake of fire, it says. Now, 20 is going to go back, and it's going to tell us the same thing through a different lens. What we see is the, the beast and the false prophet are thrown in. And so they are human forces that are now being rid of from an earthly or human lower story perspective. So here's another note for you, physical death. So we've had spiritual life, now physical death. Oppression, false religions, and sinful humanity are all overcome on earth through death. Even the suffering of the church will go away in death. The gospel is victorious over the entirety of this physical world. Right? So we who have been given spiritual life move on, but this body still has to die. And those who have nothing also must die, and then we go to the next, right, which we'll get to in 20. What you see is this human existence, this human world that we're in, you see it play out from the time of the gospel where Jesus comes to make war against Satan, right? And all, who, all that Satan would use or all who follow, and it uses that language again of who take the mark. And we know it's not a literal mark. That means it identifies them as worshiping those false things. And it brings them all to destruction, that the gospel wages war until all of evil, again, Satan, sin, and death, is overcome and thrown in the lake of the fire. So that's the lower story view. That's why, we, that's why we see the first beast and the false prophet along with kings and false authorities. That's why we see them being judged. And the birds are going to feast on the death. 
Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. So again, there's two common views. One puts these back to back, running consecutively. The other sees these as concurrent. We're going to run them concurrently, meaning simultaneously from a different vantage point. And I'll show you why when we get to a few verses in. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Right? Revelation 20 is another view of the last 12 verses that we just covered. And so I want to I want, to, I want to tell you something we'll look at in a minute. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus makes us this promise in his teachings. Remember, we need kind of the, the imagery of the Old Testament. We need Jesus' teachings. We need the visions all put together, right? But I want to give you some side-by-side or some top-bottom, so some contrasts and parallels in Revelation 19 and 20. So Revelation 19, the church receives spiritual life through the gospel and endures on earth until physical death. Revelation 20 shows that the wicked inherit eternal spiritual death while the church enters into eternal physical life in Christ. Are you with me? So there's first death, second death, physical death, and then apart from Christ, there is spiritual death. Right? Those who are not in Christ die a second death forever. But then there's us in the church that you've been given not only physical life today, you're breathing, your heart's working you also have spiritual life. If you're in Christ, that's true about you. That you have been given spiritual life. You're connected to God spiritually. Right? That you have been awakened to spiritual life. And what that means is that ultimately, you will also be given eternal physical life, a new resurrected body. So physical life, spiritual life, physical death, spiritual death. Right? And so we see how these kind of parallel and flip each other in 19 and 20. So Let's start back to the beginning. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. Verse 2, and he sees the dragon, that's Satan, we know that, that ancient serpent from Genesis, who is the devil and Satan. In case you were unclear, verse 2 makes it clear, right? And bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released for a little while. Now, some see this as a, uh, as a future period. I'm going to suggest it's where we are now, right? And you can run these things again concurrently. Most, all historical views that go back to the early church fathers, the teaching, the dedicating the first century, into the first century, beginning of the second century, all take one of two views. Neither one of those views make this a literal thousand years. No one historically has done that until the last few hundred years. The most common view today is about 200 years old, and we're, not, we're just not going to parse all those out. We're going to say it's not a literal thousand years. It doesn't really change the meaning much, right? It doesn't change for our purposes. It doesn't change them much. But I'm going to say this is a retelling of the latter half of Revelation 19 from an upper story view, right? Does that make sense? And so not a literal thousand years. And so let's give some definition here. So the bottomless pit is not hell. We know that because Satan's released from it. You with me? Okay. And the great chain is a limitation on Satan. So Satan is limited. Satan can't stop the gospel. Satan can't overcome the church. Satan can mislead some, but he can't overcome the gospel. Jesus has had victory from the ascension 
all the way until his return. Now, it's par- it, it feels partial here at the ascension because there's still a present war, right? It will feel complete at the return of Christ. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean it isn't completed. It just takes time, right? And so the consummation of the kingdom, right? The inauguration of the kingdom here at the ascension, the consummation of the kingdom here at the wedding feast or the return of Christ. Now, let me kind of give this to you. I said I'd, I'd, I'd give this verse to you in a minute. So here's Matthew 16. We'll put it on the screen. I shorten it to make sense. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Here's what's going on. Jesus is teaching his disciples right here, and a lot of people are saying a lot of things about Jesus. Some are prophets, some kind of John the Baptist come back or whatever, and he says, so who do the people say that I am? And then when they tell him all the things, he says, now, and here's the important question. In fact, here's the important question for us today too. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so here's what happened. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Right? You're the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, the, the promised one of God, the promise from Genesis 3:15 all the way through the end of the Old Testament, the promised one of God, right? The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of the living God. You are both God Himself and the solution, the gospel, the solution to sin. And Jesus answered him, on this rock, meaning on this confession of faith. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, a reference to, again, Satan, right, cannot overcome the church. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church. And so it's with that idea that there's this spiritual battle. Again, we read about that all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, all New Testament, read the Old Testament too. But we read about the church being engaged in a spiritual battle because of the gospel. Even Jesus, when he calls us to be peacemakers, remember, he also says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, right? That he will divide, sometimes father from son and mother from daughter, that the gospel will create two categories. It will create those in Christ and those outside of Christ. And so often it is a war. It can be felt as a spiritual battle. Verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been headed for the testimony of Jesus, beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so we see the people who in some views are supposed to be in this future part, where the beast is now locked up or Satan's now locked up, and yet we see that the people who rejected the beast are now in this. And so again, can't be separate time periods. It has to be the same one. People that endured here now reign with Christ here, right? Then we see this kind of, if you die on earth under this persecution, that's kind of the souls of those who are martyred or those who die a natural death who did not worship Satan or false gods or false idols, or false, those who are in Christ, right? We see them and they reign with Christ. And so if you die, you get to be present with the Lord. So we see three descriptions as a way of describing kind of the entire church. Those given authority to judge, that's a conversation for another day. Those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, that's the martyrs. And those who would not worship the beast or taken its image, right? They came to life, it says. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, if it's this period, 
then what are we talking about? How can we say, okay, well, if they came to life and reigned with Jesus, what does that mean? Bear with me. That's a great question. How can we know the thousand years means this church age? Right? That's the question. That's, this is probably the most debated chapter in all of Revelation. Is it something future? Is it literal? Or is it now? My answer is, let's look at the next two verses. I think they make it very clear. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so we have physical death, we have physical life, and then physical death. We have spiritual life, and then eternal spiritual death, right? So we've seen those things kind of paralleled. And so the first resurrection versus the second resurrection. This is the first resurrection. That implies there's a second resurrection, right? If there was just the resurrection or a resurrection, we wouldn't be expecting another one, right? But there is a resurrection for the church. The first resurrection and a second resurrection is what it says. So the first resurrection is spiritual life and awaiting a future bodily resurrection. So we're back to spiritual life, eternal physical life. You with me? Make sense at all? Kind of. Okay. We've been given the first resurrection. If you're in Christ, you've been made spiritually alive. Resurrection number one. Ultimately, this body must die, likely be laid in a grave, could be cremated, could be whatever, whatever you do, buried at sea, I don't know, right? In the backyard, maybe you're cheap, I don't know, but whatever, right? <laughs> but then, spiritually still alive, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says, right? So a second resurrection puts your body, with your, a new body, a resurrected body, a body without pain, doesn't need neck surgeries and get cancer and do all those kind of things, right? An eternal body, second resurrection. First death, physical. Second death, eternal, spiritual, right? They flip. You with me? Make more sense? All right, Ephesians 2, <clears throat> just to put something on it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I don't know why there's a team missing. It's not up there, so forget it, no typos, swear. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. Made us alive, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're missing a part. So, raised us up, gave us life, right? First resurrection is spiritual. We are made spiritually alive. Let's go back, restart at verse five. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, that's you and me, right? That's, if you're in Christ, that's us. Over such, the second death has no power. Second death is what? Spiritual, eternal death. Physical death, first death. I know, it's backwards. I get it. Physical life, spiritual life. Physical death, spiritual death, Right? You can be participating in two of those, right? You're, you're breathing and can be spiritually alive, but this body has to die, first death, right? Because you have to be given a body that isn't corrupted by sin. If you've been given no spiritual life, you also die an eternal spiritual death. We call that hell, right? Revelation is called that the lake of fire here in just a second. So the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, verse 6. 
Over such, the second death has no power. Listen, this is key. But they will be priests of God and of Christ's, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. <clears throat> so why not reign forever? Well, because it's now. Why priests? See, there are no priests. There's no need for priests in heaven because priests, by definitions, are mediators between God and man. We don't need that in heaven. Remember how I always tell you that there's one thing that you can do today to glorify God that you can't do in eternity? You can share the gospel, right? You can evangelize. You can tell others about your faith. But there's also roles you just can't play. You can't play mediator when everybody is in the presence of God. See, priests are by definition mediators between God and man. So it talks about this season and gives us who are spiritually alive up until the time we physically die, the first, first death, right? It gives us a purpose. That not only are we created to be worshipers, but one of the ways that we worship God is by sharing our faith with other people. We're giving glory to God by sharing our faith and sharing the gospel and sharing the victorious nature of what Christ has done for us with those who do not know him. So we're called in this era to be priests, impossible in an era to come, right? And so, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, been made spiritually alive. Over such, the second death has no power. That means you won't go to hell. But listen, they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. I would suggest to you again, there are two historic positions on this that disagree. One futures it, one says it's now. I'm going to tell you it's right now. And I'm going to say that because we're given the role of priests. Remember we did this when we, we went through the covenants earlier. That a covenant was made with Israel, who failed their covenant, clearly. And the outcome of, of walking within the covenant, I will make you kings and priests. I'll make you priests to the nations. Go-betweens. And Clearly, they fell short of that, ultimately failing it when rejecting Jesus and crucifying Jesus. Jesus says, a new covenant I give to you. All throughout the letters in the New Testament, Peter writes this, Paul writes this, that we become a holy kingdom, a royal priesthood, a people of Christ's own possession. We're given that role here to be mediators between God and humanity, that we would go in and be Christ incarnate in our neighborhoods. Yeah, flawed, broken versions of that, but also empowered by the Spirit to be that. That we get to live the gospel out to our friends and families and workplaces and schools and, and areas that, where others don't know Jesus. So I'm going to put a, a note up for you. So the thousand years. The thousand years of Revelation 20 refers to the time where the spiritually alive on earth, the church, exists with the purpose of reaching others, the spiritually dead, before the end finally comes physical and eternal death. You with me? Again, you can disagree. That's okay. It doesn't really change the application of today. It definitely changes some meaning. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So again, that's why it can't be hell. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, out of Ezekiel. That's a reference back to Ezekiel. To gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. It's talking about the lost world, the unsaved world. That Satan will be released and will come to deceive the nations that he will want to kind of deceive and turn the world against the church. But listen, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <laughs> Doesn't go very far. 
right? Satan is released to be judged. His heart is to deceive the nations, to rally, to win, to overcome the church. But Jesus already said that can't happen. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Jesus has crushed Satan's head. He's had victory over Satan, sin, and death. He can't walk that back. So no matter how it plays out, and I just love that you kind of have this climactic moment. Satan is released, and you think, okay, he's gaining strength, and he's gathering armies. He's gathering all these people in the world that don't agree with Jesus, that disagree with the church, that oppose the church, and they're rallying and marching and surrounding the city, which is obviously a metaphor, right? And what happens? Fire from heaven. Consumes them. Battle done. Mic drop. Over, right? That's the battle. Because what ultimately happens is Jesus has already had victory. So Satan rallies to battle, but fire came down and consumed them. The battle never begins. Verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Not the bottomless pit, but the lake of fire. That's different. And sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The upper story view of Revelation, the end of it, 17 through 21, where the beast and the false prophet are judged and sent to hell, right? Now, because notice at the end, also again, lake of fire, lake of fire, okay? They tell the same story from a different perspective. Eternal hell. So I'm going to put this on the on screen so I could put eternal death. I went with eternal hell. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the weight of it. The endurance of the church is now vindicated as Satan is judged eternally. Christ's victory over Satan began at the resurrection and ends in hell forever, right? Ends in hell for Satan forever and for the beast and for the false prophet, right? That's the end of it. That's the final victory over Satan, over sin, right? Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. So now we get a view of the great white throne. We see God now on the throne. The sky is vanishing again. That's a cue in Revelation. It's happened several times for the end of the world. Like the, the sky is vanishing or rolling up like a scroll, it says one time. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. So there's two books, the book of life. And, and then there's the other book where all the dead go. And that's talking to both those who are spiritually dead and those who die physically. So we see the white throne judgment. Here's where everybody, actually all positions in Revelation, kind of rally to this moment. The great white throne judgment exists at the, final at the final return of Christ, right? Everybody agrees, okay, we've now gotten to the end here. But here's what happens. There are everybody, again, in two categories. There are those who are in Christ in the book of life, and there are those who are not in Christ, who are judged by what they have done. And again, the gospel message is that there's nothing we can do to please God, to earn God's favor or merit his grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace it's not a gift if you earn it, it's a paycheck, right? And it has to, it is grace because there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. It is wholly and completely a work of the victory of Christ. 
He goes, we can't overcome our own sin, nevertheless, Satan or death. It is a whole part what Jesus does. And so it is all of Jesus and none of us. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. And so the book of works is, is just a record of sin. Now, the book of life and, and the book of work. Now, now, don't mistake that Christians are not judged for their works as well, but they're judged in Christ, right? How good of a steward were you with the gospel? Like, did you actually do what you were called to do? But those who are not found in the book of life that are sentenced basically just on their sin have no Christ to take their penalty and their punishment. So they stand there alone with nothing. I have this image in my brain that I get there with all my junk and Jesus just stands in front of me. says, nope, mine. That you and Christ are his. See, one of the victorious things in the gospel, that's our theme today, that victorious nature of God through Christ and us is it not just our sins removed, but his righteousness is applied. That we stand there, flaws and all, but we stand there righteous in Christ. That we're not defined by our worst decisions, but we are defined by Christ's victories. That we stand in front of God, and we are to be represented by Christ, but also that his goodness and his righteousness is given to us. And we're accountable for what we do with that, yes, Not much is said about how that all plays out. But we're told repeatedly that we're judged for what we do with the gospel. And these over here are judged apart from what they do, apart from the, uh, for what they do, apart from the gospel. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about the end of time where people are separated into sheep and goats. Now, I'm going to just give you the answer before we get to the question. What's the difference between sheep and goats? Everything, right? They're different. Sheep are in Christ, goats are apart from Christ. But then Jesus speaks to what they did, and he's, well done, like, welcome. Because of what you did, they're like, what did we do? And Jesus says, well, when you loved the least of these, when you visited the imprisoned, when you fed the poor, when you did this, you, you were doing this, the least of these things, to the least of these people, you're doing it for me. You were doing it for the gospel. But then he looks at the goats, who are not goats by their works. They do their works because they're goats. You with me? Sheep do sheep stuff. Say that really quick. I'll probably get censored or something. Goat do goat stuff. And here's what he says. He says, he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, hell is prepared for Satan and for his angels, for demons. For evil wasn't intended for people. Unfortunately, some will not come to Christ and will suffer eternally. But the intention is for Satan. The plan is Satan and all that would oppose humanity. So verse 14, then death and Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades is a Greek reference to being dead. Gehenna in Greek would be hell. Lake of fires, Gehenna. Right? Death and Hades. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Remember when I say that Jesus has victory over Satan, sin, and death? Is the death part. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 14, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown 
into the lake of fire. See, even death and all that, and just the, the absence of life of death in Hades, all of that is even consumed, right? That there will never be death again. Remember, blessed are you who are part of the first resurrection who have been made alive in Christ here today because the second death has no power over you because Christ has had victory over that because you've been made alive. Your body, the first death, must happen. That gets rid of this broken thing that I'm getting more and more ready to get rid of day by day. Right? As I wake up and get creaky and achy every morning, I'm like, new body sounds really good. I'd like to pick like 30. I was in my best shape around 30. I don't know if I get that choice, but death is overcome. Death is against us. God uses it for his purposes to renew us, but death is against us. And all who follow Satan are destroyed. And remember what we said back in Revelation 13, to follow anyone other than Jesus is to follow Satan. Right? There's no neutral camp. You're in a team. It's team Jesus or it's team Satan. And we don't always like that. We want to think the best of people. That's not the biblical picture. That you're either in Christ or you oppose Christ. So I'm going to give you two notes as we wrap this up. Christ has final victory. Jesus has ultimate victory and rids the word of evil through both physical and spiritual death to any who are not in Christ. Revelation closes with a resurrected and physical and spiritual life for all who are in Christ. We'll see more of that in 21 and 22. We'll see a picture of eternity in heaven. But first, what happens is all of Satan's sin and death, all of evil is removed. And then we get an expanded view of what eternity looks like and a commission for the church on earth as we wait. So the next, next slide. Living with eternity in our minds, in view. We need to ask ourselves how we're living for today rather than eternity. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the things that we're doing that is living for today that does not have eternity in mind? Right? Those are the things that God will want to change in us. That we would lift our eyes up from today and fix it on Jesus forever. And that that would be the lens by which we lived our lives. So what are the things that you're living for today? The things that will go away, the things that will die. Now, focus on the eternal truth. Focusing on the eternal truth causes us to live a life that reflects Christ's call on our lives rather than the worldly pursuits that die in this world. Remember, now we're back to the purpose of our reigning with Christ for a season and we get to be those priests, those mediators. A mediator goes to people on behalf of God or goes to God on behalf of the people. Right? This morning we had an opportunity to pray for others. We use the language of who's your one? Who's that one person that if they died or you died, that you would have regrets that you didn't see them come to faith or you didn't share the gospel with them? Who's that person? We should be praying for them. We're going to God on their behalf. And then we should take that next step and go to them on behalf of God, go to them on behalf of the gospel and share our faith with them. See, we're not earning anything. We're responding to the gospel implanted in us. We're not earning our salvation. We're not doing good work so that maybe God will love us. We're doing these things because God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And that Jesus has given us the victory in this life. And so now we just need to lift our eyes up out of this life. 
and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to fix our eyes on eternity and live with that in mind. And so I go back to the question, so what are the things that we're living for that are going to die in this world and recognize that and say, okay, I can't put that much value on that. That's going to die. But this is forever. I want to fix my eyes on that. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you. You are, as your word tells us, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before you, meaning us, came down from heaven, endured the scorn and shame and pain of the cross, and and you now live forever. Let us fix our eyes on you, the rider on the white horse, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who has victory, a robe dipped in blood, showing your victory. Let us live for the same thing you came for, the gospel, the message of God, the love of God, the victorious nature of what you've accomplished on our behalf. May we experience your triumph even now in this temporary world as we await this world to die and be resurrected, so to speak, as well. Lord, as we await the final and full and complete consummation of your kingdom, let us be kingdom citizens today. Let us live as citizens of heaven now. Let us be priests to our God and our King. Let us be mediators between you and the lost world and between them. Let us pray and lift them up to you. I pray even now. But those one, two or three or ten people in our hearts, let us be faithful to lift them up to you. Let us be faithful to go to them with the intention of the gospel. Let us live for eternity today because this world is fleeting and over. Shortly, as we saw last week, it comes in the blink of an eye, like a thief in the night. It will come unexpectedly. So may we always be prepared Jesus, you gave everything for us, so it's in your name we pray. Amen.